It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. We lead the path here on these issues. Look, I don't lead the path on all issues. I don't cook, so, you know, people that talk about cooking, they're way ahead of me. Excuse me. I don't play tennis. People talk about tennis, they're way ahead of me. I don't fish. But when it comes to history and economics, when it comes to the Constitution and the rule of law, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. So we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, which applies to you, too. Permitting agents, they write in this motion, to seize boxes of documents merely because they are physically found together with boxes of other items, purportedly within the scope of the warrant, is clearly overbroad. And they cite to uh, both circuit and Supreme Court precedent, of which there's a ton. So remember, this is here to protect you. The Fourth Amendment's here to protect you. Boxes of personal documents, photographs, items such as clothing are by definition not contraband. They must not be lawfully seized. In fact, the search warrant's broad scope was in violation of the Fourth Amendment's particularity requirement. Where'd you hear that first? And thus the warrant permitted a general search, prohibited as unconstitutional, since red-coated soldiers created the need for the requirement in the first place. The investigation regarding President Trump's return to the 15 archives boxes involved a referral to the Department of Justice based on questions relating to documents falling within the President's Records Act. But the PRA accords the President virtually complete control over his records during his term of office. There is no criminal enforcement mechanism or penalty. The Department of Justice National Security Division recognized that deficiency and then decided to recategorize this case as relating to national security materials. This is a brilliant point. Simply to manufacture a basis to seek a search warrant. Relatedly and importantly, did the National Security Division and the FBI mischaracterize the types of documents it sought to seize as an effort to avoid the lack of enforcement mechanism in the Presidential Records Act? Now let's slow down on this. So what they're saying here, to put a fine point on it, is the Presidential Records Act has no enforcement mechanism. So they wanted to get their hands on all the records. So they use national security as an excuse. Under controlling Supreme Court precedent, a search warrant violates a person's Fourth Amendment rights and is invalid if the affiant either makes material misstatements or makes a material omission in the affidavit. And this is why they want to see the affidavit. Did the Department of Justice mischaracterize or omit from its affidavit the true extent of the president's cooperation, press reports by anonymous government sources raised this issue. And you see, this is very, very bad because even the president's lawyers, they're saying, we want to see this affidavit so we can, so we can address it to a court. 
The Department of Justice is saying no, and the master is saying no. And a lot of former federal prosecutors, given their own bias in their own past careers, saying no. But you do have a right to defend yourself, right? Did the affidavit, did the affiant, that is signing the affidavit, to the warrant fairly disclose any pretextual or dual purpose at work in obtaining the warrant? This is me talking about the January 6th committee. For example, the receipt for property largely fails to identify seized boxes with particularity. But it does refer to the seizure of an item labeled executive grant of clemency regarding Roger Jason Stone Jr., Aside from demonstrating that this was an unlawful general search, it also suggests that DOJ simply wanted the camel's nose under the tent so they could rummage for either politically helpful documents or support other efforts to thwart President Trump from running again, such as the January 6th investigation. So you can see we were ahead of the curve, way, way ahead. Interesting. In the government's response to motions to unseal the search warrant affidavit, the government claims public exposure of the affidavit would, quote, jeopardize this investigation and other high-profile investigations. Quote, unquote, other high-profile investigations. Quote, unquote. You know what? Brilliant point. There you go. The phrasing suggests that DOJ has other interests at work than simply collecting documents with classification markings. And finally, the elements of national security statutes, such as those referenced by the search warrant, as well as the administrative process of classification and declassification, are complex matters. Did the person who signed the affidavit fully disclose the strictures of these statutes, as well as the president's overarching authority to declassify them? Did he or she disclose that there are public statements by those with knowledge indicating that documents sought in this search had been declassified? These are the types of material omissions that implicate, and they point to a case, establish a clear violation of President Trump's Fourth Amendment rights. Yes, I believe it was completely unconstitutional. I really do. Want to hear more? There's a lot more. This is a very serious, very substantive, in my view, very convincing document that has been signed. They want a special master appointed by the court. can be any lawyer or retired judge, among others, to take the documents out of the hands of the Department of Justice, which, in fact, has tainted this entire process with this unconstitutional search. But whether the court reaches that result or not is beside the point. This is a highly public matter now. The Department of Justice has no credibility whatsoever. And the benefit of a special master is not only to go through the documents, but to go through, I would argue, the chain of custody of each and every document. Because their documents are attorney-client privileged and otherwise executive privileged that might be asserted by the president to see if this entire process has been tainted. They say the government must provide an informative receipt for property. In other words, they want a detailed list of every damn thing that was taken out of there. And you have that right too. A detailed list of everything that was taken out of there. 
and they immediately want returned any item seen that was not within the scope of the search, even as broad as the so- uh, scope was, such as attorney-client privilege, potentially executive privilege. In other words, the president has a right to assert his privileges. As a regular citizen, there's attorney-client privilege and other privileges. And as a former president, he might want to assert certain things were declassified or certain things uh, were his, belonged to him, and a hundred other reasons they may want to make an assertion. And they can't do it because they don't have a detailed list of exactly what was taken. In all those boxes, 27 boxes on this unbelievably broad search. This is an excellent piece of lawyering and litigation here, folks. Just so you know, you now know more than anybody else because none of the media are going through it. And I only went through about 40% of it with the great detail that we did here. And that's the benefit of having a three-hour talk show. You can take the time and do it. You don't get three hours on television. Most podcasts are like 45 minutes to 60 minutes tops. That's the benefit of it. But this is very important to understand this. Very important. Then we have this from Hot Air. Jazz Shaw, the government is continuing its highly successful campaign, quote-unquote, to identify and convict any person that can conceivably be tied in any way to the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th. The latest two people to be dragged before a magistrate and plead guilty were a pair of sisters, Trudy Castle and Kimberly DeFrancesco. The two freely admitted to having been at the riot and entering the Capitol building after someone dropped a dime on them to the authorities, pointing to social media footage showing them inside the building. Last Wednesday, they both entered their guilty pleas after the prosecution settled on a charge of misdemeanor parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a restricted area. They face sentencing on November 22 when they could get up to six months behind bars. They're each going to pay $500 in fines. The two sisters from Illinois pleaded guilty to joining the breach. And they say, as we've done here with previous January 6 convictions, let's take a look at what is definitely known about the activities of the sisters on that day. Both women showed up at the Capitol building, along with the rest of the crowd who walked over from the White House. They were not near the front of the crowd, and they remained out of the plaza while the first wave of rioters broke through the windows and doors and began entering the building. The two women followed them inside later. The CBS News coverage linked spends more time describing the outfits that the women were wearing than anything else. That's because the videos don't show much of anything. The women are seen, quote, walking around inside the Capitol, unquote. It appears that at one point, the Francesco was talking on either a handheld radio or cell phone. They entered the building at 20, at 2.20 p.m., 2.20 p.m., and left around 3. They later considered going back a second time, but at that point, the lines of Capitol Police were blocking the entrances, So they left, and they went home. That's it. They didn't do anything else. That's the entirety of their quote-unquote crime wave. The women are guilty of trespassing, plain and simple. Yes, trespassing in the Capitol building is against the law, except, of course, if you work for the Colbert program. But trespassing in general is a crime that is rarely prosecuted, 
without the trespassers engaging in other illegal or violent actions on top of it. Typically, a, a violator gets a small fine, maybe community service, particularly when they have no prior record, which seems to be the case here. But these women weren't just prespa- trespassing in the eyes of government. They were parading. And now they might do six months in jail. Six months in jail. Another woman showed up in court to plead guilty this week. Her name is Catherine Schwab. She's from Texas. She joined in with the rioters along with her two friends, Jenna Ryan and Jason Lee Highland. Both of them had already pleaded guilty to entering the Capitol and were sentenced to 60 days and one week behind bars, respectively. That's apparently a bad thing if you're trespassing. Just as a periodic reminder, there is yet to be a single prosecution, he says, I could find of any of the people who were setting fire to the federal court building and police cruisers during the BLM riots that unfolded during the summer of love. These sentences for the rioters would be shocking under any other circumstances. But the reality is that we now live in an era of selective enforcement of the law and unequal sentencing for similar or identical crimes. It's the politicization of the justice system. and It's being right, done right before our eyes. It's America's Cold War. It's exactly what it is. And we're losing. That is why it's very, very important to confront it and expose it and talk about it. I know I'm not a political operative or consultant for the establishment, but I do know tyranny when I see it. All right, America, let's begin a different journey, shall we? The elections. One thing I'm noticing is we have a lot of suckers among us. And I'm talking about in broadcasting, TV and radio. Who are taking the bait. Now, what do I mean by this? The Democrat Party hates this country. It is nefarious in what it does and how it does it. Remember the dossier and all the rest of it. I won't waste your time going through it all. They're full of dirty tricks, and a lot of their tricks are done in the openness of the day, right in front of your face. And it involves the media. Because the media, as you know from Unfreedom of the Press, and we've talked about endlessly, are nothing more than a mouthpiece for American Marxism, the home of which is the Democrat Party. So when you look at a state like Pennsylvania and Dr. Oz, don't you find it strange that some conservatives seem to be more against Oz than they are the Democrat running against him, Fetterman? Fetterman is an extremist. Pennsylvania is not an extremist state. Other extremists in Philadelphia and so forth, but the state as a whole is not the most extreme and radical aspects of Philadelphia. It's got 11, 12 million people, and Pennsylvania is a very diverse state, racially, ethnically, in terms of religion, people's backgrounds. Pennsylvania could be three different states in that respect. 
people of Pennsylvania as a whole support the death penalty. The people of Pennsylvania as a whole oppose abortion on demand. There is a significant Catholic presence in Pennsylvania. Significant. As well as evangelical. Jewish, too, around the Philadelphia and Pittsburgh areas especially. But there is this diversity of ethnicity and this traditional conservatism. That's how somebody like Rick Santorum could win. Now, in 2006, when George Bush was president and the architect and the rest were in, in office, we lost everything, including the Senate. When Bush had come in in 2000, he inherited a Republican House and a Republican Senate. Well, he destroyed the Republican Senate. You have all these so-called rhino experts who are telling us how to win, and yet they always lose. They always lose. And in 2000, of course, it took a big battle over the Electoral College. Okay, that aside. The problem we're having, folks, and I will expand on this after the break, is a lack of unity within the Republican Party. And so we actually have a number of things going on that could elect more Democrats, but should not. When you have people who are trashing Dr. Oz, I brought J.D. Vance on this program to support him. Or they're trashing Herschel Walker, or they're trashing this one or the other one. And they claim to be Republicans. Or they claim to be moderates, or they claim to be whatever they are. Maybe even MAGA, maybe even populists. They're giving aid and comfort to some of the most radical candidates in this country. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. I think it's the first week in September we will be celebrating 20 years on the air. 20 years. Isn't that amazing? Starting as a Sunday host in New York, then a 6 to 7 p.m. host, then 6 to 8, 6 to 9. We have done very, very well in a slot that that never scored before. 
because you're up against the Mets, you're up against the Yankees, you're up against the Rangers, you're up against this, that, and the other, but we've had our core audience, and there is no competition on any other stations, period. So I'm proud of you folks, and I thank you folks. It's a tremendous honor to push our, our mission, excuse me, I want to get very deeply into now more information on the tyranny that's taking place with the Department of Justice. But before I do, I want to talk about student loan forgiveness. First of all, let me mention something nobody mentions. Where in the Constitution does the President of the United States, on his own, without legislation, without the law, have the power to forgive, quote-unquote, indebtedness, loans, that are owed to we, the taxpayers. That money is owed to you. Now, about 35 to 38% of the people in this country have graduated from four-year Colleges are higher. Two-thirds have not. That 35 to 38% on average earns far more than the other two-thirds. 70% of the beneficiaries under this are in the top 60% of wage earners. So Joe Biden and the Democrats want to redistribute wealth from blue-collar workers to not just college graduates, half of whom we're talking about have graduate degrees. Graduate degrees. So the Democrat Party, once again, is serving their base. They're serving their constituents. It's not the American people. They're empowering enriching people who support them and vote for them. And they're doing it again. So there's no constitutional basis for that, which makes this unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. And yet here we go. To get votes, to put money in the pockets, of their base. Somebody estimated it's about $900 a month. Now this will have two immediate impacts. Number one, three to $980 billion University of Pennsylvania says over 10 years. That's what it's going to cost the taxpayers. So it's going to affect inflation again. It's another spending bill, if you will. Spending bill for the wealthy. Number two, what's going to happen with college tuition? It's going to go up. It's going to make it less affordable for people who aren't wealthy, for blue-collar workers and their children. Tuition is going to go up. It's already through the roof. And if you notice, we don't have hearings on this, as I said the other day. And the reason is, these are the indoctrination mills. These are the indoctrination mills for the Democrat Party. 
Schumer wants $50,000 in relief. AOC and her elk want all of their debt, all of it, paid for by you. How many of you have loans on your cars, on your homes? Loans on major appliances? Loans on a second home? Loans on your businesses? Don't you wonder why it is that you have to continue to pay down the principal and on the interest of your loan? But this set of individuals is treated uniquely by the federal government? There's a carve-out for them? How many of you have mortgages? Most of you. You think this is fair? Why is this loan for the wealthiest among us? Those who've decided to go to college on your nickel. Apparently, colleges and universities are (laughs) making money like like drug kingpins with their tuition and so forth. Why is there this carve-out? Well, Bernie Sanders wants everybody to go to college. So everybody's indoctrinated. This is immoral. And it's unconstitutional. It's all those things and more. And it's going to cost us a fortune. All right. Just want you to keep that in mind. Excuse me. Cholera. Maggie Haberman, a.k.a. Maggot Haberman, Jody Cantor, Adam Goldman, and Ben Protus have a piece last night in the New York Slimes. Trump had more than 300 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And now I see our friends at Fox are reporting 700 pages. I thought the government wanted to keep all of this secret. I thought the government was, was on the trail, had witnesses. When I was on Hannity last week, he said to me, why? Why won't the government release the affidavit? And I said, because they want to leak it with their salami tactics. They want to cherry pick. They want to create the narrative. That's why. Because they go in court and lie. And outside of court, they leak to their favorite publications, especially the New York Slimes. Now, Maggot Haberman first worked for the New York Post. Then she worked for the New York Daily News. Then she worked for Politico. Now she works for the New York Times, where she got a Pulitzer for effectively lying about Russia collusion. She sees if you want to make money, you want to get awards, you need to work for a corporation that covered up the Holocaust, that that encouraged Stalin, encouraged Castro, and has an anti-Semitism problem. And that would be the New York Slimes. So information has been leaked to the New York Slimes, information has been leaked to the Washington Compost, information has been leaked to Newsweek, and other reliable sources. CNN, where Maggot Haberman also works. So there's a leak. And now here's the narrative. Here's the narrative. 
What in the world is Donald Trump doing with 300 classified documents? We don't know what the markings are exactly. We don't know what the documents are, of course. And now, now it's 700 pages. Next it'll be how many words. He's obviously up to no good. Obviously. We have Andrew Weissman on MSNBC. MSNBC and CNN hire the slimiest of the slime balls that used to work as prosecutors, as FBI agents, as CIA, and all the rest. These are the lowest of the low lives, and Weissman is at the top of the list of the low lives. And on MSLSD today, he said the following. Cut one, go. Andrew, let me begin with you just from an FBI point of view and a legal point of view, both of which you have. Uh, what do you make of the, the revelation in the Times that 300 classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago? So yesterday was a big news day because you had the New York Times reporting. You also had um, John Solomon issuing a letter from the archives in May uh, that um, was also quite damning. And you had um, former President Trump's filing for a special master. So there was a, a lot of news. None of it was uh, good for the president. The, the New York Times reporting I found most interesting because of one particular sentence, which is that several sources said that when um, the archives were trying to re- get the documents back, that it was the former president, Donald Trump, who personally reviewed the boxes in deciding what to return. And that means he also decided what not to return. And we know from the archives, not just from The New York Times, that in those 15 boxes were substantial number of classified documents. Okay, wow. Cut three, go. My question is, what about the unclassified documents? There are unclassified documents in there, too. Um, uh, Don't those also belong to you and me and the American people, not to Donald Trump? And and is that not as a crime, maybe not as much of a crime as, as having the compartmented information? But isn't that theft? Didn't he steal these documents from us? Absolutely. The crime uh, is the federal crime is 18 U.S.C. 641 for all of the nerds out there who want to look it up. That um, governs uh, if you steal government property. So that would uh, comply. um, So this sleazeball has Trump guilty of substantial criminal activity, including stealing government property. You have so-called reporters who obviously have studied very carefully what the laws are. Now, why am I playing this? Why am I exposing you to Andrew Weissman and this other guy on MSNBC? Why am I exposing you to this? I want you to think about the Democrats have rewarded illegal immigration. Illegal immigration. Democrats have awarded criminals. The Democrats have rewarded students now. Students. Democrats have rewarded environmentalists. Tell me, America, who do you think is paying for all this? And what rewards have you gotten? They say they've controlled the price of drugs. 
first of all, that doesn't even kick in until 19, excuse me, until uh, 2026. But that's not a reward. You're going to lose new drugs and technologies. We've talked about that. All right. So you have four so-called reporters at the New York Slimes, and these people are basically propagandists for the state. Now, when the Republicans control the elected branches of government, they're still propagandists for the state. That is, for the Democrat Party and the bureaucracy. That pretty much is the state. And so they just switch hats as fast as they can. Haberman, Cantor, Goldman, and protests. The Democrat administration comes in. They are the recipients of leaks to help the Democrats and hurt the Republicans. Republican administration is in. They are the recipient of leaks to use against a Republican administration. Leaks from Democrats, of course, and the bureaucracy. So Haberman, Cantor, Goldman, and protests took four of them, are basically scribes for the leakers. Say, look at this, 300 documents with classification markings. Had to be from the government. The Trump people want to know exactly what was taken. They don't have a, a clear inventory. So the New York Slimes knows more about the documents than the former president. Now we've got it down the pages, 700 pages. And now we have MSNBC through Weissman announcing that Trump has violated the Espionage Act, that Trump has stolen documents, that Trump has obstructed, and you don't need intent, he says. He's ready to go, baby. He's ready to go because he's an ignoramus. He's a moron. So are these four reporters that provide no context to the American people. Nothing. They're ideologues, and they are utterly unprofessional and unconscionable about how they conduct themselves. Mark Levin. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. I heard much of what my buddy Andy McCarthy said on Brett Baer's show on Fox during the break. And I have some disagreements with them. First of all, there's a moving ball here, the Espionage Act. I just told you the D.C. Circuit Court, among others, have made clear. Let me just. uh, The president can classify or declassify at will. And he need not follow any protocol. Article 2, Section 1, first sentence. He is the executive branch. He's also the sole commander in chief. He's even able to destroy those records or share them with anyone, the latter of which then presumes declassification. That's as president. Okay? It's extremely broad as a president must have the ability to function without the criminalization of his duties. Second, Trump was out of office for a mere 12 months 
when the issues arose about these particular boxes. It may have even been earlier. Multi-millions of pages of Trump administration documents are with the archives. So these documents, likely in and around his office, etc., went to Mar-a-Lago. Now, as president, when he made the decision to remove them to Mar-a-Lago, if in fact he did and not the GSA, that would remove any application of the Espionage Act, period. I understand former prosecutors don't look at it this way, but they're wrong. The law was never intended to apply to a sitting or former president. Now remember, the Espionage Act is much, much broader than just the handling of classified documents. It deals with information which, of course, the former president retains in his head. Now his subordinates have no constitutional protection. Third, the Presidential Records Act has no sanctions in it, let alone criminal sanctions. Negotiating over documents, what is or is not personal or whatever, certainly does not show an intent to commit any crime. So, when people talk about possession, that they were supposed to go to the archives, and they're at Mar-a-Lago, the second after the president leaves office. Okay, so what? It isn't grounds to get a search warrant. Fourth, the warrant was extremely broad. In my view, it violates the Fourth Amendment against general warrants. Why was it so broad? FBI had been there twice before. They had video. FBI had free run of the place in a previous subpoena. Well, if it is, as I surmise, and others have now, a pretext to look for more documents related to January 6th, then this whole thing is a ruse. Then this whole thing is a ruse. But you have to ask yourself, given everything I've just told you, why would the Attorney General of the United States, why would the U.S. Attorney in Washington, D.C., Graves, why would the Biden administration take what is really a relatively innocuous matter that's being negotiated, being discussed, it's not as if anything's being you know, they suddenly found out that there were documents at Mar-a-Lago. Why all the drama? Why all the activity? Why all the urgency? So I've surmised maybe somebody is claiming that somebody destroyed a document or something. Okay, but then why would the Attorney General wait weeks to decide to issue or to seek the issuance of a search warrant? Why? And why when they get that approval from a master, everybody keeps calling this guy a judge, from a master, on a Friday, would they wait until a Monday? But they're all taking a break over the weekend? Why? And notice the focus on the leaks coming out of the very people who are demanding that the affidavit be secreted is on the classification of documents. And notice how swiftly it has now changed to the retention of documents. 
the retention of documents. So they'll now say the Espionage Act can still be violated. No, it can't. Well, he stole the documents. Let's say, ladies and gentlemen, you steal jewelry from a jewelry store. Do you start negotiating with the owner of the jewelry store over the jewelry, Mr. Producer? He didn't steal anything. He didn't steal anything. So the question remains. Was this about January 6th and broader issues? And this other stuff is being leaked in order to change the subject? Now, that's not to say that they wouldn't necessarily bring an indictment based on some of this, because they know they're going to have a friendly, friendly jury as they do a friendly grand jury. They know they're going to have a friendly judge as they do a friendly master. But I just want you, most of you non-lawyers, most of you looking at this and shaking your head to understand, this is perverse what's taking place here over these documents. It's really quite outrageous. I'm going to read something else to you from Politico. Back several years ago, 2014, eight to be accurate, President Barack Obama signs presidential records reform. Well, what's this? President Obama signed a bill that has the potential to curtail prolonged delays in the release of historical White House records. White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest, who was anything but, announced that the Presidential and Federal Records Act amendments of 2014 was among a set of bills Obama approved just prior to the Thanksgiving holiday. The legislation will end the practice of White House lawyers repeatedly extending the review of records of prior presidents that the National Archives has designated for release. Under the new law, the current president and affected former president have 60 business days to review records the Archives declares an intention to make public under the FOIA and so forth. That period can be extended 30 business days, but only once. Under an executive order issued by Obama in 2009 and a previous order by President George W. Bush, there was effectively no time limit on such reviews. So what did he do? Why, what was going on here? <coughs> Obama, on behalf of the former President Clinton kept extending the release of thousands of pages of records from President Clinton's White House that were stored in, I guess, the Clinton Library at that time. 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, 30 days, because they didn't want the public to see them. They didn't want the public to see them. Isn't that a violation? At least of the purpose of the act? They played it. Over and over and over again. And so, Congress stepped in and said, no, you can only do that once. Because they were trying to cover up for Clinton. You don't remember that, do you? Because it was non-consequential. It was, it was, and so here we have this. They think they found something. Or at least they're using it as a pretext. Either way. I don't know. I can't be certain. Either way. 
a process that plays out over time, suddenly there are criminal issues. The Espionage Act. Now, everything I've told you is known by the Department of Justice. Everything I've told you is known by the U.S. Attorney's Office, apparently not by legal analysts. But everything else, they know this. Which is why I surmised on day one, on night one, that this has to be bigger than the Espionage Act, than the Presidential Records Act, and all the rest of it. That they're on a fishing hunt, a fishing expedition, a witch hunt. Or maybe it's this. Maybe they just want to trap them on this. They went in, subpoena. They knew there were classified records. They sat down with the U.S. attorney and others. They hatched a plot to try and get Trump on possession, on retaining classified information. And they'll make Trump fight over whether or not it was declassified the second he he decided to take the documents. And besides, they'll say their fallback position is theft. Theft in broad daylight. Theft with video cameras available. Theft in front of the Secret Service. Theft, even though the FBI had been there and saw everything. Theft. Or maybe he was destroying documents. Destroying documents, and they take at least six weeks, maybe eight, to get their search warrant. And the Attorney General, Meritless Garland, is sitting there rubbing his head for two to three weeks. After they're ready to roll, it's just hard to digest all this. Mark Levin. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Fairfax teachers trained to transition children's genders without parental approval. Jeremiah Puff, education reporter. Now, this county, Fairfax County, is a huge county in Virginia. It's the biggest county in Virginia, most populated. It is filled with a majority of bureaucrats. Not all, of course. There's always patriots here and there, but you understand. And um, used to be Republican 20 years ago. Now it's Democrat, like so many counties. And this is the Democrats. The Democrat school board and the Democrat union. I just want parents to keep this in mind. Fairfax County Public Schools in Northern Virginia are requiring all teachers to complete a training program that says parental permission is not required for students who seek to be addressed by different names or pronouns. According to materials obtained by the Washington Examiner, the district assigned the training program, quote, supporting gender expansive and transgender youth, unquote, on July 22 for teachers in all grades, including preschool. Two sources within Fairfax County Public Schools confirmed that the training was required for all teachers. The training contained, this is like the worst of communism. 
the indoctrination and the brainwashing, it's just so sickening. The training contained multiple slides about promoting equity in schools, as well as how to respond to students who express a desire to be addressed by a new name or by pronouns that do not correspond with their biological sex. The training specifically states that parental permission is not required if a student asks to be called, quote, by his chosen name in class, unquote, requests to use the locker room that corresponds with her identified gender, unquote, or asks to use a private bathroom. In other words, if you have a little boy in second grade and he identifies as Sally or doesn't and wants to use the girl's bathroom, that's okay. So it's not only a problem for the parent of the boy, it's a problem for all the parents who don't have any idea this is going on. I mean, they had a rape in the county just north of Fairfax County, Loudoun County, in a bathroom by a guy who said he was a girl and wore a skirt and raped a girl. And they covered it up. Then they sent him to another school where he molested another girl. And they covered it up. Another slide details how a student who wishes to identify with another name and gender can choose from one of three options for changing their name, none of which require parental parental permission. The first option is a name-changing class where teachers require to address the student by their chosen name. The student has the opinion to use a chosen name in some classes and not others. In other words, a name he or she chooses. The second option allows students to change their name on school online platforms. Teachers are required to, quote, ensure that class lists use chosen name. So not their birth name, their chosen name. The third option allows, by the way, are we allowed, are our kids allowed to give the teachers a chosen name, Mr. Producer? Because I have a few I think they could use. The third option allows students to change their name on all records. If a student chooses this option, their legal name will be stored in the protected information uh, in the district's database. Choosing this option does not require a legal name change or parental permission and ensures that a student will receive diplomas and transcripts with both the legal and the chosen name. So all these decisions are made by the educational bureaucracy. All these decisions are made by the teachers' unions. All these teachers are being brainwashed and indoctrinated if they want to keep their jobs. In your life, did you ever think this would happen? And it goes on in more gory detail. So what's going on here? Well, over 1.3 million of you have a copy of American Marxism in one form or another. I'm not going to refer to it. But you know what's going on, and I want to underscore this for everybody else. Again, people say, what do you do for a hobby? This is what I do. So I did more research today. And I dug and dug, and I, you know, I discard a lot of good stuff because I can't, you know, I only have three hours. I can't use it all. And then I found this. Marx, Engels, and the Abolition of the Family, printed in Great Britain, 1994. The History of European Ideas, Volume 18, Number 5. 
It's just a different way of saying what I say in my book, but it's very important. Richard Weikert, it is a peculiar fact, stated Engels a few months after Marx died, that with every great revolutionary movement, the question of free love comes to foreground. By the mid and late 19th century, it was clear to advocates and opponents alike that many socialists shared a propensity to reject the institution of the family in favor of quote-unquote free love, if not in practice, at least as an ideal. Now, you're going to hear the word socialist and Marxist. Actually, the socialists came before the Marxists, just so you understand. The Prussian and German Reich governments tried to muzzle the socialist threat to the family by drafting legislation outlawing, among other things, assaults on the family. But the anti-socialist law that Bismarck managed to pass in 1878 contained no mention of the family. The Utopian Socialists, remember the book Ameritopia? The Utopian Socialists, Charles Fuhrer and Robert Owen, had preceded Marx and Engels in the rejection of traditional family relationships, and many 19th century leftists followed their cue. The most famous was a German socialist, uh, the Germans, August Bebel, though he was a staunch Marxist, wrote his immensely popular book, I can't read German, under the influence of Feuer's ideas. However, not all socialists in the 19th century were anti-family. The anarchist, Mikhail Bakunin, while jettisoning most of the traditional family ties, nevertheless thought that a voluntary natural family unit consisting of a man, a woman, and their children would emerge to replace the extant legal family. Let me cut to the chase because this is about 25 pages and very fascinating to somebody like me. Marx and Engels, they didn't invent the idea, but they certainly embraced it and expanded it and promoted it. Believe that the family, like the society, the status quo society, was a throwback to feudalism. That it was not natural. And that just as Marxism needs to destroy the existing society, just as Marxism needs to begin society anew, you must destroy history. You must destroy all connections to history. You must destroy the patriotism for the state that is. You see that happening in America. What do you think CRT is all about? The world begins today. That the great obstacles are those who resist, those who embrace religion, and the nuclear family. You must destroy them all. You must destroy them all. Because these are the great, the great issues that interfere with utopia. Marxist utopia. And so Marx and Engels, they didn't instigate this anti-family trend, but they contributed to it mightily. Mightily. And that is exactly what's going on. 
says the interpretations of Marx's and Engels' position on the family, while often raising important points, tend to obscure somewhat the radicalism of their views. Marx and Engels' critique of the family consisted of three main elements, a depiction of the hypocrisy and inhumanity of the contemporary bourgeois family. The historicization of the family, that is, a historical account of the origins and development of the family in the past and a vision of the future family in the communist society. Marx once alluded to a higher form of the family in communist society. He and Engels usually wrote about the destruction, dissolution, abolition of the family. The relationships they envisioned for communist society would have little or no resemblance to the family as it exists. They believed in the abolition of the family. And the family unit was to be infinitely elastic. Not just reformulated. So this is where it comes from. Marx's first significant exposure to the concept of the abolition of the family probably came while he was in Paris in 1843. He first imbibed communist ideas, and, or what would become communist ideas, and held long discussions with numerous socialists, other radicals. So these ideas played in his head. Fourier, who I mentioned earlier, advocated the replacement of the monogamous marriage with a system allowing much greater latitude for sexual passions, since he believed that monogamy was an institution contrary to human nature. It was thus an impediment to human happiness. He also proposed that children be raised communally. Communally. So society would be one big harmonious family rather than fractured into competitive, squabbling, small family units. This forced Marx to grapple with the idea of the family and provided him with ammunition which he used to criticize the family unit, its present institution, and the German ideology, which he wrote 1845. And Engels, who lived longer than Marx, in many ways was smarter than Marx, but Marx was very powerful. His understanding of family relationships was strongly influenced by these men. In fact, Engels' most influential work, he lavished praise on both socialists for their views on the family. Even more masterfully wrote his, his critique, that is, four years, of the bourgeois form of sexual relationships and the position of the women in bourgeois society. While working on the origin of the family in 1884, he wrote to a friend that Foyer had brilliantly anticipated many of these matters. What I'm trying to get across here is this issue of abolishing the family was a very, very core, expansive belief among the radicals, among the Marxists, that you had to destroy the family unit. You had to destroy the family unit. You had to destroy the whole notion of binary sex. It's free love, free sex in order to establish a Marxist society. Mark Levin.
We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. We have our friend Jared Kushner with us. How are you, Jared? Doing great, Mark, and thank you again for, for having me tonight. It's a great pleasure. The book is Breaking History, a White House memoir. Now, what's particularly compelling about this book is you write about your firsthand experiences at the White House, working with the president, your father-in-law, Ivanka, your wife, and so many other people. And I don't really view this as a kiss-and-tell book, and there's a lot of kiss-and-tell books in which the goal is to stab Donald Trump in the back. So tell the audience, if you would, Jared Kushner, the book is Breaking History, a White House memoir. How was it like working with Donald Trump? So working with him was a very unique experience. I, I find that there are so many people who have tried to describe Trump in different ways, but the truth is often hiding in plain sight. You know, people know him. He's been the same person when he was on television. He's the same person when he was doing business. He's the same person when he was in politics. And he doesn't change, but he was such a a challenge to the political system as an outsider that I write about his experience learning how to do a political campaign and how he did you know, his first campaign ever running for president and winning, which is uh, pretty historic in nature. I, I write a, a lot about how he figured out different things. He did it his own way. Uh, he did it unconventionally, but ultimately was very successful. And then working with him in the White House, he was a very demanding boss. He worked 24-7. Uh, since I know him, I'm married to Ivanka now almost 13 years. Uh, I've never seen him take a vacation. And so uh, he would call me at one o'clock in the morning. He would call me at five o'clock in the morning. Uh, he never stopped. And the myriad of issues that we worked on from securing the border and immigration to uh, trying to figure out how to end the, end, end the endless wars, the work in the Middle East to support uh, the relationship with Israel and to take on China, to figure out how to get along with Russia. These were all issues that were that were combated while while also fighting on all the domestic fronts as well and dealing with the investigations and the phony witch hunts and the crazy impeachments. So uh, he worked nonstop. And in this book, I really try to take people inside what it was like, the intensity of it, how all these issues were going at at one time, and how Trump thinks and how he was able to accomplish so much while being under so much siege from the media and from the Democrats and from, from all different angles. And you really have to be laser-focused, don't you? Because there's a lot of static, there's a lot of incoming, there's a lot of media distraction, people in your own party trying to uh, undermine you and so forth. I mean, in the end, you really have to be focused, don't you? So, so I would not have ever thought, you know, being a, a businessman and being somebody who'd watched <laughs> politics, just how crazy and intense it is to be inside of politics. And that was really what I tried to, to show the reader. I, I tell many, many stories about how you have people with competing interests trying to undermine the president's agenda. You know, one thing I talk about is is building the wall. You know, there were two years where um, they didn't give President Trump enough funding for the wall and different people, whether it was Steve Bannon, whether it was John Kelly, they, they didn't get the job done for him. And so, you know, I just gotten a big uh, a prison reform done where we were trying to figure out how to get skills training in prisons so that people, when they get out, you know, go ahead and get jobs instead of committing crimes in the future to keep communities safer. And President Trump said, okay, you're working on the wall now. Congratulations. And so uh, I, I really write about what it was like to have to find the money in different ways and and uh, and how President Trump, he shut down the government because he said, I'm going to, I am not going to let my voters down. I promised I was going to do this. What's happening at the southern border is a total disgrace. But he was fought by everybody. And Congress tried to stop him. People's own administration tried to stop him. But through a sheer force of will, he found the money. And by the end of his administration, he built 470 miles of wall. 
because of the success of the mall, the wall, there were changes in the migratory patterns. He was building more wall. And the immigration numbers were the lowest they'd been in history uh, when President Trump left. And obviously, that's been undone. And the disaster that's happening at the southern border now, uh, based on the current administration revoking Trump's policies, is an absolute humanitarian disaster. So I try to write a lot about what it's like to get things done in Washington and to give people who never served in Washington uh, a firsthand account, especially in, in just the chaos and the and, and just the, the, the warfare that was happening in Washington, trying to stop President Trump from fulfilling his promises to the American people. Now, you were dragged into a lot of these these events, too, right? I mean, uh, on the Hill, different uh, investigations and so forth. I guess you were shocked by that, like, my God. All I'm doing is trying to help here, right? Well, it was partially that, but I got over that pretty quickly because I, I realized that it's a big game and that, you know, when you're in, in politics, it's almost like sand in an hourglass and there, there there's a shot clock. So your job is to get things done and their job is to try to distract you or stop you so that you're not able to get those things or done. Or destroy but you. What, what shocked me? Well, that was what shocked me, right? Because, you know, it's not like the consequence was, okay, we stop him, that's okay. What they were trying to do was put us in jail. And, and you know, I had several times, I write about this in my book, where I had mornings, I'd have several uh, film cameras outside my house, and I'd call my lawyer and say, this is, yeah, and, and I basically yeah. said to myself, I didn't know what they were investigating us for. You know, mm -hmm. they said that we colluded with Russia, they promised people for two years that that was the case. But we never, we, we never did anything like that. So we had to spend two years proving our innocence and fighting that off while trying to get things done. Mm -hmm. And um, you would work with the Hill. You would work with Republicans and Democrats on the Hill. Let me ask you this. Who was the most difficult to work with? Which individual? Can you tell me? So, oh, I mean, you have difficult individuals all over the place. You know, I, I, I personally found... Um, unfortunately, M Mitch McConnell was both difficult and simple, right? He just wanted to hold his power. And, and if he felt like the politics were good, he'd let it go. But he, he was not looking to be courageous to get things done. Uh, there were some people on, on the right who I was totally surprised by how amazing they were. Like Mike Lee became an unbelievable ally. And then that guy is brilliant. He works his butt off. Uh, he, would, he would go through the text on every bill. Uh, and really was just relentless to get the things done he wanted to get done. Uh, but I was very disappointed with some of the Democrat leaders. There were you know, issues like criminal justice reform that ended up passing with 87 votes uh, in the Senate, and then the trade deal, USMCA, which, vote, which passed with 89 votes. But the reluctance to engage with from the Democrat leadership was very, uh, very, very disappointing. But I, but I will say also there's a lot of very good members as well. Like, believe it or not, Dick Durbin, I found to be very constructive and Hakeem Jeffries, uh, they were willing to work to try to find uh, constructive solutions to find policies that we could push forward. And uh, the trick was just to keep the, the conversations quiet, you know, out of the out of the out of the reach of the media. And I write a lot about these you know, dinners we'd have at our house with people. We'd get Democrats and Republicans together and say, OK, we're both on the same side here. We're both Americans. Let's just agree on what a good solution is. And then let's figure out where we're apart and how do we get there. And I think that's how the system's supposed to work. But we were able to get a lot of that done. And President Trump, to his credit, he fought very hard for what he believed in. But he was one to cut deals and get done the things that he felt benefited the American people at large. Did you ever work with Nancy Pelosi? 
Uh, I think that she was just trying to to obstruct and fight Trump at at every step of the way. I mean, I think her whole agenda was to become speaker, you know, for the first two years. So there was no um, there was no hints that we saw uh, in order to to, to get things done. Uh, but I will say, though, the one place where we were able to work with her was on the rescue package when the, the economy was was looking very uh, shaky during COVID, and, and we got an amazing rescue package done that I do think saved the American economy and, and the global economy in that matter. And that was just a real work of, of speed that President Trump did that was that really made a big, big difference. The book is Breaking History, a White House memoir, Jared Kushner. Did you ever work with Liz Cheney? So she was always in there fighting with President Trump. She wanted to keep our troops overseas forever, and so she would fight with that. But, you know, she was always very kind to me, actually, through the four years, because she said, look, I know what it's like having you know, a high-profile father uh, or relative who's who's serving in government. And she'd go always go out of her way to say gracious things, but then... Obviously, when she uh, when she went on this committee and, and went on this jihad, uh, you know, she couldn't have been more nasty when she was doing the questioning. And, you know, I don't know. I, I've just seen this time and time again with, you know, different Republicans where the media starts, you know, treating them nicely and they basically, you know, say what they have to say to go against Trump. And then the more they go against Trump and say these things, they get elevated. But it's, you know, it's kind of like in some ways she's like the new Michael Avenatti. And, you know, the media will, will use her to do what they need. And then when they're done with her, they'll disregard her. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's very unfortunate, you know, what she's done. And, and I think it's it's pretty self-serving on her part to get attention. Folks, this is a great book. If you want to know what actually took place in and around the Oval Office, with President Trump and so forth. It's not a book trying to trash the former president, you know, even the score with the former president or whatever. Jerry Kushner was not a disgruntled former employee. He was there right to the end. Breaking History, a White House memoir. You can get it on Amazon.com right now. You can get it at any major bookstore right now. What shocked you the most? The bureaucracy, the backstabbing, anything positive? Well, I, I think that the book goes through so many things because the whole experience was kind of shocking. But I, I think what shocked me the most was how wrong a lot of the conventional thinkers were and how bringing an outsider's approach to Washington enabled Trump to get so many things done. And I think that you know the, the best example of that is really in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords, how the conventional thinking was really summed up by John Kerry before uh, we took office. He said, there will never be peace between Israel and the Arab countries until there is peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And that was how everything was accepted. And, and you know, Trump had me, you know, speaking to different people, forming different points of view. And then as I came up, you know, with a perspective, I said, I think we can do this the other way. And Trump said, Let, let's go do that. And so uh, we really worked very hard to, to do that. And that led to a breakthrough that nobody thought was possible with the Abraham Accords peace deal, where you had peace between Israel and the Arab countries, which really started to end the Arab-Israeli conflict, which which was a big breakthrough. By the end of Trump's administration, we had six peace deals in the last six months, and there was amazing momentum, and he totally turned around the Middle East. So what, what I came away from Washington believing was that you have a lot of these career political people who have been there for way too long, whose job is to, to stay in Washington, and they judge each other, they go to the media, and they have the same stale thinking. And I, I do think that 
Our country has so much potential. I've seen it. I saw the way Trump was able to get our economy rolling. I saw the way he was able to deal with foreign countries and, and make sure we had no problems with China. We were making great trade deals with China. We had no problems with Russia. Forget about the war that you have now. That never would have happened if Trump uh, was in office. Trump dealt with Putin very, uh, very respectfully and very strongly. I mean, there's one story, you know, I tell in the book about how Trump was negotiating a deal with Putin and with uh, King Salman from Saudi Arabia to get an OPEC plus oil cut done to save the American oil and gas industry, uh, which has about 11 million jobs during the, the COVID drop. And he's on the phone with Putin and he says to, to Putin, you know, he's making some small talk beforehand as he does because he had a good relationship. He says, aren't you nervous about China, you know, with your southern border? All your wealth is in, is in the south. You know, are you nervous they're going to try to expand in and take some of your land there? And Putin says to, to Trump without missing a beat, if I'm the one who should be worried about my southern border, why are you the one building the wall? And yeah. so, you know, they had good back and forth, but they respected each other and they were able to kind of get things done. And so I think my surprise was just how there was so much that could be accomplished with good leadership. And again, Trump was so uh, forced to deal with all the investigations and all the inquisitions, but he still managed to get the economy rocking and, and create a very peaceful world. And in many ways, he's a force of nature, isn't he? His charisma, his personality, his uh, can-do-it attitude. Now, let's look at Iran very uh, he, quickly here. It looks like uh, Biden's about to sell out to Iran in the worst possible way. He's not going to send it to the Congress to approve. Uh, and so, um, you know, the former president basically put his foot on their throat and was choking their economy, had sanctions on them, uh, was basically supporting in his own way the, uh, the the voices of freedom over there, and now we have the opposite, don't we? Look, the, the, the deal that was done with Iran in 2014 was probably one of the worst deals that was ever cut in the history of the world. And I used to have a lot of countries say to me, well, if we can't trust the deal that America makes, then what good is our relationship? And I would say, look, we've had uh, a lot of different deals with different countries, but a treaty between countries, and this wasn't even a treaty, this was a deal, is only good for as long as, as it's in the interests of both, 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 both sovereign nations. And this, this deal basically you know, gave them all this money that they didn't use to invest in their economy. They used to increase their military budget. Uh, the day they signed the deal, they were saying death to America. And they really were causing a ton of instability throughout the Middle East. So President Trump took their their oil, they were doing about 2.6 million barrels a day down to about 100,000 barrels a day and really uh, was causing their, their economy serious, serious pain. And so it took about three years to turn the tide with them. But whereas President Trump inherited a very weak hand, he ended up with a very strong hand. Now, he used to say that Iran has never won a war, but they've never lost a negotiation. And he knows that they were very talented negotiators. He played a lot of different games with them, but he had a very strong hand to play. The current administration, when they came in, instead of building off of the six peace deals that President Trump had made, and keep in mind, the Middle East was an absolute mess for 20 years. It wasn't just the Democrats that screwed it up. It was also the Republicans before them. It was mm -hmm. the whole foreign policy establishment that screwed up the Middle East. But instead of taking the Trump approach, because Trump did it, they went back to the old failed approach, and they've basically been on their knees begging Iran to make a deal, which makes no sense. And Iran has shown no uh, interest, at least they've shown no sense to, to me or to a lot of other people who I trust that it's going to change their behavior and they're going to start, you know, they're going to stop saying death to Israel, death to America. 
and, and going to become, you know, kind of a, a country that we can coexist with. So I, I think that what they should be doing is, is, is definitely not making this deal. But if they were going to make a deal, I'm not against making a deal. You have to make a deal that will stop their funding of, of terrorist groups throughout causing instability and, and not allow them to become a nuclear power. Because once they have that, they are going to absolutely go crazy destabilizing a lot of the countries around them. Well, apparently they have the technology now. Just a matter of fusing it with the uh, with the deli- the uh, delivery system, according to many many reports. And uh, they've been playing rope a dope with the Biden administration, and now, I mean, they're even demanding things like if the United States pulls out again, that they have to be paid uh, reparations. And so, I mean, it's so preposterous. The book, which is really a journey through the uh, the term of uh, President Trump with uh, probably, I'd say, Jared, you were there's closest aide, Breaking History, a White House memoir. General Kelly, you know, I uh, think of the chiefs of staff who were there. I thought General Kelly, you know, on the outside, he seemed like a great guy, a four-star general and so forth. But there were issues there, right? Yeah, definitely. So I actually was a proponent for General Kelly coming in. He'd impressed me with the results that... Uh, that had been achieved at the uh, Department of Homeland Security, where the border uh, became pretty secure. Uh, he had a great reputation in the military. But what we saw very quickly when he was in the White House, and I, I tell many stories about this, is that his ability to transfer from a military organization to a civilian organization uh, was very lacking. He was also a very conventional thinker, uh, you know, having been in Washington so long and part of, um, part, part of that, that, that world. Whereas Trump wanted to try and change the world and try to do disruptive things, he wanted to manage the world. And at some point, it felt like you, know, you had two types of people there. You had people who thought that Trump was saving the world and then people who thought they were saving the world from Trump. And the latter group just had really had no business being there. But you know, I tell different stories about how you know, when it came time to move the embassy to Jerusalem, Trump was trying to you know, get a process going. And I think Kelly didn't like the fact that Trump wanted to do it. And Ambassador Friedman, myself, we were pushing very hard uh, for the president to do it. And so he created a process designed to allow all the voices of dissent to try to get in there and, and talk President Trump out of it. But President Trump ran a process like he normally does. And there's a great scene I write about from the Situation Room where you know, General Kelly, you know, arranges for Rex Tillerson, who was the Secretary of State at the time, to you know, explain to the president why this was not a warranted move. And he opened up his binder and he says, you know, well, in uh, you know, in 1996, when you know Jerusalem was was captured in the war, and David Freeman said, whoa, 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 just just so that we're very clear, it was 1967. <laughs> you know, I know a lot more about this history than you do. And, and Tillerson just closes his book and, and goes back. And then you know, Mattis says to me, says, well, let me ask you, why? Do they? Why do we have to? Why does Jerusalem have to be the capital? Every time I go to visit the military, I go to Tel Aviv. And David turns to him and says, "Well, let me ask you, where's the Pentagon?" He says, "In Virginia." He says, "Exactly." So by that definition, Virginia should be the capital, you know, mm-hmm. not DC. And so uh, it was just one of these things where he kept trying to create these processes to hold back the progress that President Trump wanted to do. But again, it took President Trump a couple of years to get to know Washington. He used to joke that the first night he ever slept in D.C. was the first night he ever slept in the White House. He was an outsider. And uh, and again, what I really tried to do in this book was that you had four years of you know the media nonstop talking about Trump. What was he thinking? What was he doing? Uh, what did he do? What did he say? What did he not say? 
And it was just absolute wall to wall. And what I found being right next to him the whole time was that they just, they were always missing the story. And, you know, some ways there was like a big smoke screen. Think about it like the ocean where there were waves chopping all the time. But underneath the water, it was actually pretty smooth, pretty quiet. And there were a lot of incredible policies happening, which is how President Trump was able to get the economy roaring. Wages were rising. Inflation was low. Gas prices were low. Uh, you know, the world was peaceful. And, you know, the trade deals were happening. Companies were moving jobs back to America. And everything was working just like Trump had, just like President Trump had promised. So I really wanted to kind of describe what it was like being there in a very hostile environment. Uh, and again, General Kelly was one of the characters in, in that um, who I learned certain things from. Again, you know, there was different management things he did that I, I learned from. But there were a lot of things he did that I think didn't fit with the personality and the ambition of what President Trump was trying to achieve. All this is in the book, ladies and gentlemen, Breaking History and a lot more. Uh, Jared Kushner's book. How about Mick Mulvaney? How was he to work with? So Mick was fine. You know, I think that, um, you know, Reince came in in the beginning. He was the first chief of staff and, and he was in an impossible situation because you had just so many different people who were coming in and, and there was a lot of different turf wars. Then Kelly came in and it went more from a liquid to a solid. I think Mulvaney took a more laid back approach and allowed a lot of things to start functioning in the White House. And I write about that a lot as well. Uh, we started getting good groove, getting a lot of things done. Where he kind of hit uh, a wall was during the impeachment. Uh, that was really an existential moment, right? President Trump was trying to investigate corruption in Ukraine, and the Democrats, in, in their haste to get him, I mean, you spoke about Pelosi earlier. Um, I'd been hearing from my friends who were Democrats that she was not going to do impeachment. And then what happened was, is the people on the left were starting to challenge the moderates and saying that we're going to primary you if you don't do impeachment. So she said, you know, I have no choice. If not, I'm going to lose my job. So she started it. But I always say that Trump makes his enemies so crazy that they make mistakes in trying to get him. And so they picked the wrong thing to try to impeach him on. And so they chose this, this crazy whistleblower call. Mulvaney actually helped make the right call to say, no, 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 this is a political issue more than a legal issue. Let's release the tape. And that's what Trump wanted to do. And I write you know, through the deliberations of that. And that turned out to show that it actually was a perfect phone call. And I actually, at that point, you know, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Lee Zeldin, Matt Gates, they all showed up at the White House and said, you guys have a great case here, but you're blowing it. And they came in and they said, look, the, the facts of this case are very simple, right? Number one, you released the transcript showing that you had nothing to hide. Uh, number two, uh, you released the aid. So, you know, it, there, number three, there was never an investigation. And number four, President Zelensky, when asked at the U.N., said there was no pressure. So those are your four facts. And if you just stick to those facts, you'll pummel these guys. And so we really had to get organized to do that. But there was a lot of tension between White House counsel and Mulvaney. And that just showed a lot of cracks in the machine. And then that was when Trump decided to bring in Meadows, who I think was actually a, an excellent uh, White House chief of staff. He, he understood the politics. He, he understood how to bring in the right people. And, uh, and that's when I think we, we were really running at the, at the best level, you know, not maybe for any other president, but the best way to serve Trump and, and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. Uh, then obviously, you know, COVID happened and that, um, that, 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 that had to reset everything. But I think because he had a team that was ready to go, that's why he was able to pull off so many miracles during COVID in order to, to get the country what they needed to prevent a lot of deaths. And Meadows seemed to have, you know, he really had his, his ego in check. A lot of these other guys, you know, they just felt they were bigger than the president, I feel. 
Let me ask you another question. Let's talk about this virus for a moment. President has to deal with a lot of faces he never saw before, you know, out of the CDC and and Fauci and all the rest of them. And uh, what do you think about how the way that worked, things that you had to do with the ventilators and so forth? As a matter of fact, President joked with me the other day. He said, Mark, you need to buy a ventilator? We've got plenty of ventilators. Anyway, <laughs> you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so actually that 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 he's referring to uh we were at a point where uh, you know Governor Cuomo was requesting 40,000 ventilators. Everyone thought that we were going to end up like Italy where people would be dying on gurneys and hospitals and doctors would be have to make, you know, have to be making life or death decisions on who lived and who died. And we only had I think it was about 14,000 ventilators in the stockpile. And the data that we were showing was that we were going to need anywhere from, you know, 40,000 to 130,000, you know, in a week or two. So we're looking at data showing that, you know, a lot of Americans are going to die because, you know, we just didn't have the, the preparedness for it. And that was probably the scariest moment that I had in my entire service and probably in my entire life, knowing that, you know, just the tsunami coming at us was so big. And so, you know, we ran into action. We started, you know, making sure that governors gave us data. Uh, before they were able to get any any ventilators. And, you know, we were getting a lot of heat from the media, everyone saying, you know, give me ventilators, give me ventilators, but we couldn't satisfy all the demands. So President Trump was yelling at me saying, get the ventilators out. And I said, look, I'll take responsibility for this. These guys don't need the amount of ventilators they're 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 requesting. And once we send it out, we're never getting it back because everyone's hoarding all these goods all over the country. And so we ended up, uh, you know, distributing them very, very smartly. I worked closely with Cuomo, worked closely with Murphy in New Jersey, who was phenomenal. And we made sure that everyone in the country who needed a ventilator got a ventilator. And at the same time, we used the Defense Production Act and we, we stimulated supply. And, and so by the time we were done, we had so many ventilators that we were sending them to other countries to help save lives there. But with regards to the CDC and, and uh, the NIH, you know, originally – uh, I was very impressed, and the team was saying they were very impressed with the talent and expertise that was there. And why not? I mean, we didn't know anything about infectious diseases, so we were initially impressed. But as it started spreading in America, we realized that the CDC just had zero operational capability. Uh, it was run by bureaucrats. They had about, I think it was 11,000 people. I could probably run that thing with maybe like 100 was probably all they need. You could do a lot of you know fat cutting there. And we just found that we had to kind of bring in business people and private sector people in the military to figure out how to operationally deal with all the different logistics like scaling testing um, and, and distributing the vaccine and, and getting things manufactured uh, because they, they, these, these, these bureaucrats mostly didn't have. Now, there were a ton of tremendous people that we found in the bureaucracy who stepped up and helped and did an incredible job. And, you know, these people were working during the time, you know, with fear of, you know, catching the virus. And, and, and it really was uh, you know, combat time and a lot of people stepped up, but uh, the leadership really was not prepared for, you know, the sole function that they're really designed to be prepared for. And we had to navigate through that. And I give President Trump a ton of credit because at the time, there's a scene I write about in the book with Dr. Fauci, where he's basically screaming at him saying, look, you know, you're telling me to shut down the economy. Kids are not going to school. That's going to mess them up. People are, are committing suicide. They're, they're getting hooked on drugs and alcohol. They're losing their jobs. And I'm not going to I'm not going to preside over the death of the greatest economy 
that, 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 that that's ever existed in history. And so Dr. Fauci then backs off and says, look, you know, I'm just, I just give medical advice and you're the one who has to consider all of these things at large. And, you know, they just had different approaches in terms of how they took it. Um, but ultimately, President Trump was able to calibrate it and figure out how to save as many lives as possible, but also keep our economy and country strong. Uh, and those, that was not easy. And those were some very, very dark days. The media was weaponizing the virus to attack President Trump. And again, I write, you know, I've got five chapters on this in the book, but it moves pretty quickly about all the things we did to constantly be innovating and evolving uh, to rise to what was a, a very historic challenge. And again, if you would have had, you know, the bureaucrats in charge instead of an outsider and a businessman like President Trump, I think the results would have been, you know, catastrophically worse. There was just a study in The Lancet that came out that basically said that because of the speed of getting the vaccine done, which was historic, 20 million people around the world uh, have been saved, you know, people who would have died otherwise uh, because of the effectiveness of Operation Warp Speed. And that really is, is only a tribute to President Trump and him, you know, empowering the right people and, and breaking through the bureaucracy and, and, and saying, I want this result and I don't care who says it can't be done. Everyone laughed when he said we are going to get it done in, in, in 10 months. And, uh, and he made that miracle happen. And, and thank God that he did. It's an extremely impressive book. It flows beautifully. It's easy to read. It is. There are things that they come across, you know, the human side of the president, which they always try to dehumanize him. Uh, you had a not just a bird's eye view, but a hands on role. Very, very important. And I want to encourage all of you out there, not just people who love Donald Trump, although I, I do count you in this, but people who are just fascinated by history. This is the book you want. Breaking History, Jared Kushner. It's a White House memoir. I could listen to this for hours. And Jared, I want to thank you very, very much. Ladies and gentlemen, you can go to Amazon.com right now, any major bookstore tomorrow. You want to get a copy of this. It is a, a terrific book to read. Jared, thanks so much, my friend. Mark, thank you. It's an honor to be with you. And thanks for all you do and all you fight for. Well, God bless you. Best of the family. Just terrific, this book, I have to say.